0: Good morning. We're going to be continuing our series we've been in for the last several weeks called Love Your Dot Dot Dot. And as we've been in this series, we began with uh, really understanding what love is, what type of love that we're talking about and how it's to be expressed and understanding agape love from uh, from um, God's expressed love to us and His perfect expression of that in our lives and to the world around us. And then we've begun to talk about how to reciprocate that back to Him, how to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, how to love one another, which can be hard. Church people can be difficult to love, but how to love one another, how to love the other. Uh, we've been talking about a few different things like that. Last week we talked about how to love your own story and that God can use the whole of your story for the whole of His glory when we surrender that to Him. And this morning we're going to be uh, redirecting our love back out to the world around us. and We're going to be focusing on how to love our neighbor as ourself. And I found it really um, uh, I, I found it um, intentional not by our design but by the Spirit of God this morning Uh, that in Pastor Tom's exhortation to us, that he reminded us that there's no condemnation in Christ. And I draw your attention back to that because whenever I get to a passage in Scripture that challenges me to love others the way that Jesus loves me, I can feel the weight of how easily I miss that mark. And so this morning, I would expect that just as in my own life, that the Lord and the Spirit of God would be moving in you and be challenging you uh, with really how often we have little love for those around us. And instead of feeling a weight, instead of feeling a condemnation with that, can you sense an invitation this morning from the Lord to participate in His move in our community? If you could receive that with joy, receive that with hope, and uh, receive that with uh, a belief that you can take small steps towards a great move of God in our community. I think that we would be more prone to go out rejoicing and ready for the opportunities that God's going to bring each and every one of us in this coming week. Uh, As we start talking about loving uh, our neighbor, um, one of the things that I thought about this week is that uh, we tend to, or at least maybe this is just uh, something that I tend to do, but I, I tend to evaluate myself based on my intentions right so what i intend to happen what i intend to do how i intended something to be received i i typically evaluate uh, my own activity based on my intentions but i evaluate others based on their actions right what they actually do anybody ever kind of fall into that a good example of this is when i'm driving and inadvertently cut somebody off i know it's hard to believe but there's times where i am one of those distracted drivers and i've been in that position where i have caused offense to somebody on the roadway and have oh man i become aware of it and i kind of give the whoopsie wave like whoopsie like hey just you know you try to smile you're like i didn't mean to do that like i know that i did it but i didn't mean to do it type of a thing right And you're hoping for just like a pass. And very rarely do I get that. Usually people are pointing me to Jesus with the wrong finger when that happens. (laughs) But I'm evaluating it based on my intentions. Now, if somebody cuts me off, I'm not really concerned with their intentions. I'm evaluating them on their actions. Don't we respond in that way? And then based on whether or not our kids are in the car determines what we call those people out loud as we're driving. Like, that—that that is a tendency that we have. Like, we give ourselves a pass on things because we know truly our internal motivations. And oftentimes, we uh, fall short, but we didn't intend to. And so we kind of say, well, it's okay. But the way that we evaluate others and the way that they express the activity of their lives in our lives is through their actions. And I'm, I'm Working with my kids in this type of alignment with what we've actually done and the responsibility that we need to take in our admission of that, because a lot of times what's going on in our house right now as we're trying to coach our kids is this idea of like, well, I didn't mean to do that. And it's like, yeah, but you did that, and you've got to take responsibility for that. Well, I didn't mean it that way, or I said that in just joking, right? And we've all been recipients of that, where somebody says something in a cutting way, and then just joking is the Band-Aid they put on it, but we still feel like we're bleeding out. Like, we're, we're working on that. There's responsibility that needs to be attached to the activity of our lives, and I give you that illustration because a lot of times when it comes to loving our neighbor as ourselves. Right, Especially if you are a, a church rat. You grew up in the church. You've, you've heard about that. You know that you're supposed to live in a loving manner towards the world around you. We are prone to have great intentions towards doing that and oftentimes little activity that actually accommodates that. We often intend to love our neighbor without acting upon it in any real in practical way. And a lot of times, maybe you're like me and you fall into that trap where you think about like, I, I would if I could, right? I've got all kinds of great ideas into how to be neighborly to those who live in my neighborhood, how to be kind to those around me, how to interact with those in uh, the workplace and in the community. I've, I've got all kinds of great ideas and all kinds of if I, uh, if I could, I would type of a thing, Right, and sometimes the "I would if I could" has to do with time. Like, well, I just don't have time today, but I'm going to get around to it, and then we never get around to it. Or I would if I could, if I had the money, but I'm not actually going to discipline any of my resource allocation towards that. It's just if I have a windfall somewhere, if I find extra money in my pocket in the wash machine, then maybe I'll follow through. It's I would if I could. And what I find oftentimes when it comes to either time or money or knowing really what to do, how to attend to the needs in the world around us, I end up, I would if I could, but I don't. And don't is just a contraction for do not. And in the practical sense, when I get to that place, then I I do not love. I intend to. I want to, I desire to, I certainly want to receive that. But if you're just kind of looking at the result of the decisions that we make and the way that we live, oftentimes we end up in this place where we want to, we intend to, but we do, we just do not. For a variety of different reasons. And I would just suggest to you that Jesus challenges us. Jesus challenges us to put love into action. In the very first week, when we started looking at this series, that idea of love, agape love, the type of love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, all of the words that are used there to describe love are all action-oriented words. It's all uh, verbs and adverbs. It's all movement. It's always, it's doing. And even John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent good vibes no, He sent His one and only Son, that He entered into our mess to be a part of what was going on. God so loved you and I that He was moved to act on our behalf. That Love is movement-oriented. And so there's a challenge in that for us this morning. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and get that out. You have your smartphone or your tablet, go ahead and get that out and open up your Bible app. Lord, we ask that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear Your Word today. Lord, help us to be challenged, but that we would be challenged with an invitation that is full of hope and full of opportunity. Lord, guard our hearts and our minds against any condemning word that the enemy would bring to highlight places maybe where we have come up short in this area. Lord, let us recognize that when you challenge us by your word, it's always in the hope that we would move into the plans and purposes that you have for our lives and not further away from you. And so let us draw near to you and your word today and into your purposes this week. In Jesus' name, amen. With your Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 10. And Luke chapter 10, when we began this sermon series, this might have been where you would have expected us to start. Uh, When we began with this idea that when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment and how he was going to sum up all of God's word, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. That exchange is recorded in Mark and Matthew on one occasion, but this is another occasion in Luke where a similar exchange is taking place and in it, Jesus tells a parable or a story of the Good Samaritan, and many of you would be familiar with it. We're going to begin. We're going to read the whole of the passage, 25 to 37, and then we're going to kind of unpack it for ourselves this morning. Verse 25: On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Talked about this and different times, really, in the last couple sermon series, that there was often a move of those who were learned. In, in God's word, who they would come and they would try to test Jesus. They would try to trap him. This wasn't a new thing. And on, on one occasion, this was taking place. And this was the question that was posited. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a little different than the passage that we started the series with. Because in that passage... And that passage, the question that was asked of Jesus was, which is the greatest commandment? And he answers with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, quoting out of Deuteronomy, and then love your neighbor as yourself, another direct quotation out of the book of, Levit- of Leviticus. And so he says those things sum up the whole of what God is trying to draw out of us and how to draw near to him. But on this occasion there's a similar question, but it's not what is the greatest commandment. It's how, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I receive life everlasting or life that endures on forever? It's not just how do I get to someday, but how does life extend into eternity? And Jesus responds in verse 26, he says, What is written in the law? So he turns the question back over to the teacher. And the teacher replies Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He responds in the way that Jesus had responded to the question of what is the greatest commandment. And then Jesus' response to him was, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And then there's a follow-up question here. And it says that he wanted to justify himself So he asked, who is my neighbor? And then in response to that in just a moment, we'll read the parable. Now, when you first read this passage of Scripture, in the way that this kind of question is being asked and directed towards Jesus, and the way that most of the time we think about the test question being, we think of it as that first question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's asking Jesus to answer that question. But I don't think that was actually the test. Because the way that he responds to Jesus turning the question back on him, the man responds with a correct answer. He responds with a right answer, but not a typically Jewish answer. The idea of summing up the whole of God's word with love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that was not a common viewpoint. That wasn't something that was the the common understanding of the day. In fact, many scholars would suggest that it was Jesus who brought about that type of uh, really um, highlighting the whole of God's word. It is likely that this person, in giving their answer to Jesus, had heard Jesus speak this on another occasion. And as he is trying to kind of get into this debate mode with Jesus, he says, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, how do you think that should be answered? And then he answers with something that Jesus has said before. They would suggest to me that that was already prepared. He already knew how that exchange was gonna go. The test question, the how to test Jesus was this follow-up question, who is my neighbor? This is the chance to try to get Jesus to go too narrow or too broad. This is the chance to invite Jesus to say something controversial. This was the chance to somehow get Jesus to create a fence in the hearers. And so rather than answering this question directly, Jesus tells a story. In reply Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite man, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And then the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor? the man who fell into the hands of robbers, and the expert in the law replied with really the only answer, the one who had mercy on him. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Jesus answers this question,
1: who is my neighbor? With
0: this story. Now, at the beginning, again, we're coming back to this idea that the whole of God's design for you, the whole of God's design for me, for our lives, is that we would love him with all that we are and that we would love others with that love that we receive. But that, 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 that's the whole thing wrapped up there.
1: But this question of who
0: is my neighbor it's really this question. God, do I have to love everybody? Like who, who does this apply
1: to? And
0: inadvertently, I would say, even with our best intentions at times, we look to justify ourselves in much the same way. We look to justify ourselves in much the same way. And this isn't meant to be a heavy or sobering thought. It's just to be an honest thought. That it is very frequent in my life that I love with a lesser love than God loves me. I love him with a lesser love. And I certainly have a tendency to love others with a lesser love as well. It's the reason why God's word is so challenging. It's the reason why Jesus has designed an invitation to us to be a part of a move of God's love in the world, why it's so transformative, why it's so other than, why it's so foreign to just our day-to-day exchange and interactions with people. There's, there's, there's challenge to this. And in this exchange, the man was looking to justify himself with a reasoning to not love or to not respond in a loving way to others. And what I want to suggest to you is there's three justifications that we have a tendency to make, and they're not an exhaustive list, but they are illustrative of this passage. But there's three ways that we have a tendency to justify ourselves to not moving, living, acting, doing love. And the first one is we excuse ourselves because of our intentions, right? We know that we intend to be loving. I just didn't quite get there today. I know that I said that, but I didn't mean it that way. And I know that I did that, but I didn't intend for that result. Like that, That's a lot of the way that we fumble our way through life, but we have a tendency to excuse ourselves because our intentions are good. And what's really interesting is that if you uh, unpack this parable, if you get into kind of a scholastic mode and you start parsing it out, you almost end up in a discipline or an exercise of creating excuses through good intentions. See, if you're going to unpack some of the details in this, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, the roadway that Jesus picks as this place that this atrocity happened, that happened all the time. It was one of the most treacherous roads of travel at that time was the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. All the time, people fell into situations like this. In fact, as he begins the story, as he says there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, you would almost immediately associate with this isn't going to go well. This is the bad side of town at the wrong time of night, all alone in a vulnerable situation. Like all you have to do is describe the setting and you know it's not going to go well. We have places like that in our community, places where I was growing up in Southern California. If I mentioned a street corner, you would know that whatever was going to come out of the rest of that story, it was not going to go well. There was almost an expectation that this was going to happen. And so this man being beset by robbers, this man being uh, stripped and beaten and robbed and left half for dead, you would almost get to this conclusion. Well, of course that happened. He shouldn't have been on the road in the first place. And you know what? If he shouldn't have
1: been there, I don't really have to care, do I? And so then Jesus introduces a new character,
0: and it's a priest. It says that he happened to be going down the same road. Now a lot of scholars fill in some blanks here because they would say that the priest traveling this road was likely on his way to Jerusalem. He was going to perform his priestly duties at the temple. It was something that was uh, important. It was something that was timely it was something that was a service to God that in doing so he had to keep himself holy and separate from the possible contamination of a dead body you can actually make sense of him passing by And even in the Jewish context, to the hearer there, they would say, well, yeah, of course he couldn't stop because if that body was dead, then he would be defiled. And if he was defiled, then he couldn't actually go and do his job at the temple. He would be disqualified holy. And certainly, wouldn't God want him to be holy and qualified to serve him than to do something that potentially was gonna disqualify him? Like, you could wrestle this out in your mind, but what you land on is that he had good intentions in passing by.
1: And he could have.
0: You can read that into the story. I also find it interesting that it doesn't tell me what direction he was going. If he was going from Jericho to Jerusalem, you could make all of that summation and make it stick. But if he was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he had already fulfilled that, then it paints a whole different picture, doesn't it? But a lot of scholars like to think that he was going to Jerusalem because it means that he had good intentions. He just missed the opportunity. The same thing can be said of the Levite. Intentionally maybe making his way to worship and wanting to keep himself holy in his worship and offering to God. But all that does is say that they have good intentions. And in doing so, we excuse the inactivity see at the end of all of it when jesus poses the question who was a neighbor to the person in need it was the one who did something it was it was the one who acted
1: it was the one who took action
0: It's likely that the priest could have passed by and prayed for the person's situation. It's likely that the Levite could have done the same thing. It's likely that they would and could have had empathy. Like there's so many different ways that this story can be kind of unpacked and things that you can surmise into the details. Jesus leaves it intentionally vague to create that tension. And what I find is the more I try to figure out why they would pass by, the more I'm trying to arrive on an excuse that I can use in my own life. I can't stop and help because i got to preach today. I can't offer my time because I've got to give my time to something more spiritual. See, there's all kinds of ways that we can determine that our intentions are good enough, but the parable challenges us to take action, to do something. In James chapter two, James pushes on the the practicality of our faith, putting it into action. And he asks this question in verse 14. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but they have no deeds? They're all talking, no action. Can such faith save them? A better way to think about this is, does that faith have practical value? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? Right? Social media has, has made this something that is commonplace. Somebody raises their hand and says, Man, I've got this deep need in my life, and we send prayer hands. My friends that are
1: unbelieving will send good vibes.
0: But are needs being met? Are people being moved? Are people being met in the place where they are? Is the the church getting into those situations and, and being a part of those things? These are challenging thoughts, they're sobering thoughts. And again, it's not meant to be heavy or condemning, it's none of those things. But it should cause us to think, which is what Jesus is doing with this parable, to this expert into the law and all those who are listening. James says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. He's not talking about salvation here. This isn't saying that you have to do good works in order to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying here. But he is pressing the activity of love and that if somebody has a need and we acknowledge that they have a need and we say, I hope somebody does something about that need, but we're not a part of the solution to that need, then we just missed an opportunity to love the way that God loves us. And we've got to see and frame that out a little bit differently. But if we can excuse ourselves because of our good intentions, then I can love with a lesser love than God loves me. The other way we try to justify ourselves is in understanding love as contractual, like a, a, a lesser love. See, one of the things that is a challenge in this story is that the person who needs the love, the person who has the need, they can't ask for it, can they? In fact, it's presumed that he's dead until the Samaritan actually goes and investigates and finds that there's breath of life still in him. It's presumed that he's dead. Everything from the outside would suggest that this person has already perished. They can't ask for anything. It's unrequested. It's unmerited. He certainly hasn't done anything to deserve it. It can't be repaid. I'm not even sure he's going to live. And the way that you and I experience love in this world would suggest that we don't have to love in that situation because love, according to the systems of this world, is a contract. It's an if then. If I do this, then you do that. Or if you do this, I will do that. It's a fair exchange. And then if you don't, then I don't have to. And that's the system that we function in, that's the systems of this world. I'll help somebody if they ask for it. And I know that they deserve it. And there's a chance that they can repay me. See, but that's not agape love. That's not God's love. Scripture says that Christ died for the ungodly. And the way that Paul describes it, he says, when you were still dead in your sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Before you were willing to ask for forgiveness, before you and I were willing... To receive salvation, it was already being made available to us because God was moved by His love. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. He was already moving actively in your salvation and your redemption. Not just thinking about it, not prayer hands and good vibes, He was coming to rescue.
1: We certainly don't deserve that love.
0: And we could never repay it. That's the kind of love we're being challenged to be motivated by here. And you see that in this situation. This man, he can't ask for it. He's done nothing to deserve it. And there's nothing to indicate that he can repay it. In fact, he's got nothing. He's naked, beaten, and left for dead. Like, he has nothing to offer. But the one who loved his neighbor acted anyway. And this would have been really challenging for the hearers of this story. Because, in kind of first century Jewish thinking, there were some ethical ways that you were supposed to go about moving in the world. There's an, apof- an apocryphal book um, called the Book of Sirach, it was written in 200 BC. And it's a book of ethical teachings about how to live out honoring Yahweh. It would have been a familiar reading for the hearers of the time. And this is how it talks about loving others. Chapter 12, verse 1 of that book, it says, When you do a good deed, make sure you know who is benefiting from it. Then what you do won't be wasted. And then in verse 7, it says, give to good people, but do not help sinners. And I can tell you that if those two statements are offensive to you, the five verses between them are more so. And that was the paradigm, that was the thought structure of the Jewish hearer here. where of course the priest would pass by. He doesn't know that guy. He doesn't know whether he is a sinner or a righteous person. And you know what? It's likely that he's a sinner because look at what happened to him. They would have been perfectly justified in their view of love and contractual if-then exchange to just go on by. But Jesus said, no, who loved And then he made it incredibly uh, offensive to another degree that the hero of his story is a Samaritan who would have been the lowest person of consideration in the Jewish mind. The least likely and most offensive of any heroic person within a story to be presented. And the point is, the point is to love differently and to put it into action. See, we justify ourselves by our intentions. Man, you know, I would if I could, but I just I don't have the time, I don't have the money. I don't know what to do. We justify our actions when we love with a lesser love. Well, they didn't ask for help, so. They can't repay it. Or you know what, they're in their situation because they got themselves there, like they deserve to be there. The other way that we justify ourselves is we see the enormity of the problem. See, we we can't do everything. And for many of us, that paralyzing thought causes us to do nothing. And I, I feel the weight of that often. Like the needs in our community, like Pastor Ben can't meet those. Like the, the, the degree of brokenness and fracture in just our own community. The people and the systems and the things. Like, I can't, I can't love all of that. I can't make a difference in all of that. And then you compound that, just what comes into your social media feed or what you're getting from the news. Like, every day is another traumatic event. Every day is another trauma. Every day is another catastrophe. Every day is another place in need. It's wars over sea, and it's hurricanes on our own shores. Like, it's everywhere. And we can get caught. Like, what, how, like what, what, do, what do I do? Like, do I give every problem a dollar and have nothing left? Do I lump it all together and try to get one thing moving? Like, where do I mobilize my attention and my effort? Where do I focus my prayers? Man, I can't do it all. I know that.
1: Good. Jesus can. Like,
0: Jesus can. Sometimes, when we are called to love like God, we feel like we have to step in and be Him in those situations, and you're not called to do that. You just partner with Jesus. You partner with the Spirit of God in the moment that you have, in the way that you're able to, and you trust that He's going to do the rest.
1: Do something, love little,
0: even if it's little. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells another parable. It's a parable of the sheep and the goats. They're all brought together. And it is spoken about kind of the way that they lived their life and how they honored the king. And in that exchange, one of the things that is said is that there's this group that is invited in and the king is commending them and saying, when I was naked, you clothed me. And when I was hungry, you fed me. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was sick... You cared for me, and when I was in prison, you visited me. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. We don't remember any of that. And verse 40 says this. The king replied, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, when it comes to loving our neighbor, we think really big. When it comes to loving our world, we think really big. And that's okay, that's appropriate. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would tell you to think big. Think big about what God can do in your life and through your life, and think big about how God changes things. But at the same time, it can be as simple as a cup of water, it can be as simple as practical care. See, the man who offered the attention, and it's extravagant attention. He binds up the wounds with his own hands. He clothes the man in his own clothes. He puts him on his own mode of transportation and walks instead. Puts him up in his own accommodations. Pays for it all in advance and says, whatever is extra, put it on my tab. Like, it's extravagant. But he had the means and the opportunity as far as the story lays it out for him to do that. And sometimes we think, well, if I can't do it all, I won't do anything. No, do something. Just, just do something. See, we are all or nothing type of people in our thoughts. And I think that that does a disservice to the way that God really wants to move in the body of Christ. Oftentimes, I'll hear people think about, hey, if we all got together and did this one big thing, wouldn't that be awesome? And it's like, yeah, it would be awesome for that one big thing and for that one big recipient maybe. But how much more awesome would it be? How much more would a movement be begun in a community if everybody here did just one little thing to a bunch of different people and started that moving forward? What would that ripple into? What could that result in? What type of movement would take place in our community? Between our two services, we have hundreds of people every Sunday. What if everybody went out and did 10 practically loving things this week and then just did it the next week and just did it the next week and then all of a sudden things started happening in our community where God was moving because practical things were being done and all we were doing was taking baby steps and just saying, kind of, this is what I can do today. Like that's how, that's how I think the world changes. That's how I think a movement of God starts. Whatever you do for the least of these, do this as if it's unto me. And at the end of all of this, this is really kind of the driving factor of the story. As much as you can extrapolate some of the stuff about the travel between the cities and the priests and Levites, you can land on different intentions and you can surmise all of the in-between stuff. Really, the moral of the story is really, really simple. That the one who acted is the one who loved And the invitation for you and I is to live our lives with this simple premise that we're going to love as we have opportunity to the degree that we're able. I'm going to love when I recognize the opportunity, and I'm just going to do what I can. God never asks you to give what you don't have. He never expects of you what you can't do. We're always invited to just take our little step of faith, to offer our lunch as the little boy did, and then to watch thousands be changed by that simple act of faith. It's just an invitation to do that. Love as you have opportunity to the degree that you are able. So you're in a place of business and you hear an employee berated by a customer. Why don't you be the one who speaks life into them after? you make your way out of the store and you load your vehicle, why don't you be the one who returns their grocery cart? Like a cup of water, a simple act. But where we're seeing opportunities to serve and to love in, in just practically simplistic ways, that it would be every person, every time, with all we have, at that moment, church family, if you would stand, worship team, if you would come forward. As the worship team is coming forward, I'm going to invite you to just close your eyes for a moment. I want to close out distractions, and I want to invite you. I want you to. I want to invite you to imagine something. I want you to imagine for a moment what our lives would look like this week if we chose not to justify our inaction but intentionally took loving action in the opportunities that we had. Imagine in the next couple of hours after our service gets over, in just a moment you're all going to go your separate ways. What if in the next couple of hours each one of us acted in love, just in our community, wherever you go, in whatever your interaction was that you thought about, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to love before I get home. Who's going to be, Jesus? How might our interactions begin to change with the people around us if we saw them as opportunities to love unconditionally, if we saw them as opportunities to love the way that we've been loved by Jesus? Imagine the places in our community that would begin to be bettered. Imagine what type of movement would be started through those simple acts of loving kindness. Lord, would you stir our hearts with compassion. Lord, with your compassion. There's things in this world that we care deeply about, Lord. Each one of us have different perspectives and motivations. Lord, there's different causes and needs that grab our hearts in differing ways. Lord, what if each one of us was moved by your compassion in that area and we just, we just did something? Lord, would you forgive us for the places where we've excused our inactivity because we had good intentions? Lord, would you forgive us for the places where we have tried to live out a lesser love of an if-then contract with the world around us? Lord, would you forgive us for the times where we've been paralyzed by just the enormous need around us and we haven't had the faith to do something little because we haven't believed that it would make much difference? Lord, heal us of those things today. That we wouldn't look to justify ourselves for inaction, but that we would just be motivated by your compassion to act. This week, help us to love as we have opportunity to the degree that we are able. That every person, every time, with all we have, we would be moved by love. That we would love our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Got a few action steps for you this week. I'd encourage you to snap a picture of these with your smartphone or tablet. You can catch these online later as well. But number one is pray for eyes to see the opportunities to love. Number two, take action when those opportunities present themselves and do it in a practical way, practically love in the way that you're able at that time.